We're into lesson number three of spiritual jurisprudence. And our third lesson, we're calling it the law of God in the New Testament. One of the reasons for writing these lessons is because of the great conspiracy of the day and the great heresy that says we are free from law. We don't have to obey law. We don't have to keep any law. That we've been delivered from the law. The law has been abolished. And as we looked at last week and as we're looking at in these lessons, so much of that is just raw ignorance and some of it is conspired heresy. You and I are under laws every minute of our life, every second of our life. We don't have time to discuss every law that's applied to you right now this instant. From the laws of electricity, the laws of physics, the laws of chemistry, the law of gravity, to the laws of our city that are applied to you right now, to the federal laws that are applied to this building right now, to the laws and the codes and building materials and the chairs you're sitting on. It's against the law to cut the tag off the chair you're sitting on until the owner takes possession of it. Those are laws, much less the laws of the Bible. You're still not free to kill anybody, though you wish you could from time to time. And we're driving the point home that we, we don't live lawless. Everything God does is maintained by a law. When he speaks, it is law. And to violate it is to commit sin or to suffer a catastrophic explosion of some sort. Let's look at our lesson here in review. As covered in the previous lesson, there were, and there still are, 613 laws in the Old Testament. They are contained in only four books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy and all are collectively called the mitzvah. And you've got mitzvah and mitzvot, one is plural, one is singular. The usage in the Hebrew escapes me. If I'm wrong, just have mercy on me because my Hebrew is not good at all. It's, it's gotten worser. <laughs> the Ten Commandments were the first of the 613 commandments to be given. The additional 603 commandments can be viewed as expo ex expositions or explanations of the Ten Commandments. That's something we need to understand. God himself delivers the Ten Commandments on Mount Horeb in Exodus chapter 20, and he writes them on the tablets of stone with his finger. They're engraved by God. Four commandments, the first four on one tablet, the other six on the second tablet. The Bible says that very specifically. The first four commandments command us how to relate to God. Thou shalt help no other gods before me. You'll remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. You won't make any idols. The other tablet has the six commandments that all have to do with how we interact with people. How do we deal with God? How we deal with people? Because that's all there is in life. God and people. You remember Jesus Christ said, what are the greatest commandments? To love the Lord thy God with all the heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That verse summarizes the Ten Commandments. The 603 commandments built on top of the Ten Commandments all expound or further, give further detail about how God wanted the Israelites to keep the Ten Commandments. How do you serve the Lord God only? There's a whole bunch of commandments of how to worship Him, how to sacrifice to Him. How do I love my neighbor as myself, which is not one of the Ten Commandments, but it summarizes the other six. How, how do I not steal? There's all these laws that encapsulate what theft is in the eyes of God. So it's pretty simple. One of the things we're going to see over and over again in these lessons is that once you capture the heart of the law, once you understand the purpose of the law, you don't need the law to be reminded anymore. You have it written on the tables of your heart. If you fail to capture the heart or the essence of the law, you'll become legalistic and you won't understand the purpose behind things. Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, is Jesus Christ confirming what we just said, that the 603 commandments built on top of the Ten Commandments, 
or expositions or explanations of the original Ten Commandments. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus said, On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. On these two commandments, everything from Moses to the prophets hangs upon that. Which, what, that's another way of saying all the other commandments, the other 603 commandments are just expositions, expounding, explanations, and further detail how God wants something done. You could say roughly, God said, build me an ark. And then there's about a million ways that you have to do, a million rules to how you build an ark. So there's one commandment for Noah, build me a boat. And then we have no idea what God may have said in private concerning how to build the boat. The first commandment here summarizes commandments one through four. Commandments one through four on the tablets of stone are summarized by saying, love your Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. The second commandment here, which is love your neighbor as yourself, it summarizes commandments five through ten. It's worth going back and, and studying them. They say, I think it's like five or eight percent of Americans can't even, uh, only five to eight, uh, it's a small percentage of Americans can't even name five of the ten commandments. I would probably bet most of you can't name all of them. Don't let that be our testimony. Go study Exodus 20. Learn your Ten Commandments. The only one not quoted in the New Testament is the Fourth Commandment, which is remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. But the other ones apply to you, so you should probably know the nine of the original Ten Commandments. It's a good little homework assignment. Don't just get hung up as a crazy matic on the nine fruit or gifts of the Spirit. Learn the Ten Commandments, learn the fruit of the Spirit, and then we can talk about the gifts of the Spirit. So the intent and purpose of the law was given to accomplish several things. We're reviewing from last week because we want to cover this again. What's the purpose of the law given by God? And God's Word even says this. Here's a couple bullet points. It proved Israel's obedience and faithfulness to Jehovah. Here's the thing. That's one of the pur first purposes. God says, the reason I give you the law is to prove you. James chapter 1 says the same thing. So the law was given on the Old Testament to prove the Old Testament believers. The same purpose exists in the New Testament for us today. God gives us commandments to prove our obedience and faithfulness to Jehovah. It taught Israel holiness and the nature of God. 2 Timothy confirms that for the New Testament believer. The law was intended to make Israel a special treasure to God. 1 Peter 2.9 says that about us. The law was intended to make Israel a kingdom of priests. 1 Peter chapter 2 says the same thing about us. The law was intended to make Israel a holy nation. 1 Peter chapter 2 says the same thing about us. It was intended uh, to preserve Israel from the consequences of sin. Romans chapter 2 and chapters 8 say the exact same thing about the commandments of God for the New Testament believer. It was intended as the key to possess the land that was promised. Hebrews 12, 1 says the same thing. Let us lay aside the weights and the sins. Let's run the race set before us. That's a principle of inheriting what God has for you. How do we inherit what God has for us? Keep the law of God and put away the sin. How do we know what sin is? The Bible says thou shalt not blank, 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 blank. Those are sins. Obedience to the law was intended to make Israel God's people. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 17 and 18 says the exact same thing. Come out from among them, touch not the unclean, and I will be a God to you and you shall be my sons and daughters. It was intended to promote Israel to a nation above all nations for praise, 
for fame and for honor. James 4 and 1 Peter 5 say the exact same thing. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you. Humility obeys the word, pride rebels. So the law was given so that Israel could be exalted as a nation above all nations. The New Testament says if we obey and serve God, he will exalt us. To me, this, is, this pattern here should really fortify us to embrace the word of God, not reject it, but put roots down even deeper into all the law, all the commandments, all the New Testament commandments and principles, and not be of this lawless generation that it's taking over the kingdom. It's prophesied that it would happen. It's called the great falling away. It's called the son of perdition, the son of lawlessness, iniquity abounding, but it doesn't have to affect us. Obedience to the law was intended to consecrate Israel as a people. John 17 and Ephesians 5 say the exact same thing about us. Obeying the law consecrates us. That means it separates us and makes us special just for God. The only difference between you and a backslidden Christian is that you're consecrated. Once you're consecrated, God is able to be a lot better to you and your life improves. Backslidden Christians have horrible, wretched lives. We pray that they do. But the problem is backslidden Christians violate commandment after law, after commandment, after principle. So it's not that God is destroying them. It's that they're breaking rules and breaking laws that are destroying themselves. You break the laws of gravity, it hurts you. God doesn't hurt you, but he established the law. You break the laws of physics, God doesn't hurt you, you hurt yourself, though God established the law. You break the laws of chemistry, God doesn't hurt you, you hurt yourself, though God ordained the laws. And if you break the law of God, God doesn't hurt you, you only hurt yourself, though God ordained the laws. So in essence, we call it judgment, but there's probably a better term, we might say a passive judgment. We call it dum-dum judgment. You just dum-dum and broke the laws of God, and they had catastrophic ramifications. It's not God doing anything to you. It's you reaping what you've sown. When the kid falls out of the playhouse and breaks his arm, it's nobody's fault. It's not God's fault. It's not gravity's fault. It's an an accident or maybe foolish horseplay, but there's still a price to pay. Final point, it was intended to afford Israel all the blessings of God. And Hebrews 6 says the same thing for us. These are purposes as to why God gave the law. The funny thing is, or the ironic thing is, again, if we assume that we're free from the law, then how come I have a mirrored point for every one of these in the New Testament? How come I can prove that God, everything he wanted to do the Jews, he wants to do for New Testament believers, but it all comes through obedience to his commandments. We are not set free. We are redeemed. We're atoned for But if we don't keep the law, we suffer the same things the Old Testament people did. Not maybe to the same degree, but there is a suffering to be incurred. Now, of course, there are certain moral codes, not moral codes, excuse me, civil laws that we're redeemed from that are not brought over. Like if your kid mouths off to you, we don't have to stone them in the parking lot, though sometimes we'd like to. But that was an Old Testament law. If a kid is mouthy or disrespects mom and dad, you had the right to take them out and the whole tribe could stone them. That's how you had obedient children. Nowadays, we put them on Ritalin and Prozac. We refuse to spank them because it might make them stutter. And all the other lies are the psychologists that are helping to send our nation to hell. Now, we don't stone kids, but the Bible does still say the rod of correction will drive foolishness from your child's heart. Amen. These were the wonderful intentions or heart behind the law of God. It was not the purpose or intention of God to make his people legalistic. 
it was not God's purpose to make his people legalistic, but legalism is part of the sin nature, just like superstition is. And just because you're born again doesn't mean you are free from the effects of legalism or superstition. Both of those can work very actively in you, just like lust can, just like greed can. You're redeemed from sin, but it still resides in your sin nature. And you're not going to get rid of that until your body is laid down and you get a glorified body. Legalism occurs when man fails to understand the heart behind the law. We use again the example of the speed limit. Why do we have speed limits? So that everybody is on the same page and we can all safely drive. If you know the purpose behind the speed limit, then when your child is in need of medical attention, you can break that speed limit by twofold and not feel guilty about it. And even the police, if they pull you over and find out that your child's bleeding, they will help escort you do 90 miles an hour in a 45. They won't, they won't ticket you at all. They'll say, get behind me. We'll clear away. You won't be held responsible for the violation of that law. Once you know the heart of it, you keep it because you get it. You get the reasoning. You get the logic behind it. And therefore, you don't have to be told in minute detail not to rob, not to steal, not to lie. Each of the above intentions is also found in the New Testament, whether directly or in principle. God still wants to accomplish the same things with his people under the new covenant. All right. So here's some stuff I've taught on in this church many times, but now you can have it in writing on a nice curriculum format. The New Testament commandments, 613 commandments in the Old Testament. And honestly, in the four books, most of them are repeated again in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy can roughly be described as the second giving of the law. There are some new laws revealed in Deuteronomy, but the, the law, the mitzvah, was given over 40 years, beginning at Horeb, all the way until Moses died and they entered into the promised land. Deuteronomy, though, is Moses reminding Israel of all the laws and adding some new ones to further tune uh, or a fine hone what they were doing. So even in four books, it's not like it's every verse for four books of the Old Testament. And again, I want you to know that because the modern, ignorant, lawless Christian in the seeker church wants to tell you you're free from the law. And the Old Testament is, is so legalistic. Only four books contain law. Only 11% of the Old Testament contains law. We're not free to be lawless and we're not free to do anything we want to. And even of those 613 commandments, we're not free from all of them. You still can't fellowship with the dead. You still can't get into witchcraft or sorcery. You still can't get into prostitution. You still can't have sex with a dog. Why would you want to? You still can't prostitute your daughter. You still can't put a stumbling block in front of the blind. You know, that's a law. That's one of the 613. Don't trip blind people. Why did they have to be told that? Because maybe it was sport for the Jews to go around tripping blind people. It's Leviticus chapter 19. Don't put a stumbling block in front of blind people. Why do you have to be told that? Because somebody was doing it. Can you believe that? Sure you can, because your coffee cup says caution contents are hot. Why? Because Americans are just as stupid. <laughs> or, you know, you go to some precipice and it says, don't throw rocks off of here. Why? Well, because somebody from Sparta wants to throw rocks off a cliff. The New Testament is built upon the Old Testament. There's no way to get around that. The church did not use the term New Testament until the second century. The early theologian Tertullian first coined it at least 100 years after the death of the apostles. So all the way up until the second century, nobody saw the writings of the Gospels or the epistles as a, as a second or New Testament. It was just scripture. It was all one book. Furthermore, we make the point that when Timothy and Titus say, you have known the scriptures that are able to make you wise unto salvation, 
the scriptures they're talking about is the entire Old Testament. You realize as Paul's writing the, quote, New Testament, they don't have the New Testament. They're building the church on Moses and the prophets. Your first epistle wasn't written until about 45 AD by James. Your last epistles weren't finished until almost the year 100. So you have from 33 AD to 100 AD, 70 years of the church growing, building, winning the lost, casting out demons based on Moses and the prophets and the things they could remember about what Jesus had taught them and the personal revelations of the foundational apostles and prophets. Furthermore, your Bible wasn't canonized until the 4th century. Just so you know, because modern Christians are so ignorant, they can hardly even spell anymore, and most of their time is spent on Facebook. I don't want my church to be drooling on themselves when it comes to theology. Because to me, this, this kingdom is so simple, you just have to apply yourself to it a little bit. In many regards, the New Testament can be viewed as a continuation of the former with several adjustments. Consider the following Bible facts. The New Testament directly quotes the Old Testament 695 times. The New Testament references the Old Testament 4,100 times, 4,105 times. There are 7,957 verses in the New Testament, so 51% of the New Testament references the Old Testament. 20 of the 26 New Testament books quote the Old Testament. And none of them say, and don't worry, don't pay any attention to everything before Malachi. The Torah, which is the first five books, is quoted 245 times in the New Testament. That's the most legalistic part of the Bible. Quoted 245 times. And you know who the greatest quoter of the Torah was? Jesus Christ. The New Testament has 1,050 commands. 613 in the Old Testament. These commands vary from simple do's and don'ts to seek this, abstain from that, desire this, reject that. Scores of commands are repeated numerous times. For example, don't fornicate. That's not just in the New Testament once. There's many verses that say don't fornicate. Don't steal. That's not just once in the New Testament. Multiple times, don't steal, etc. So if you simplify those and you eliminate those that are duplicitous, then you get down to 800 unique or individual New Testament commandments. So we're down to 800, but that is still almost 200 more than the Old Testament. So consider the following implications on this. The New Testament has 30% more laws or commandments. So now that we're born again and we're on this side of Calvary, we're under more law, not less. We're under more commandments not less. We're under more responsibility, not less. We actually have more binding boundaries, not less. And yet we're free because sin is not freedom. Sin is not freedom. To embrace lawlessness is to say that sin will set you free. Jesus Christ said, keep my commandments, know my word, and my word will make you free. My truth will make you free. You cannot be free breaking the laws of God. But then again, Jesus said, my commandments are not grievous. So they're not difficult. They're not suffocating. They actually protect you from things you don't know anything about. 
Again, I, in my career as a geologist doing construction and all that kind of stuff, um, the mining industry might be a good example here. There was all sorts of commandments that we were given underground as a zinc mine, as the mine geologist, that I didn't know anything about because I'd never worked in the mining industry before. But we had certain rules, and they were very strict. Like if you saw the, the back, which is what we call the ceiling underground, if you saw it spitting rock, you could not be in there. Well, that could be legalistic, or it could save you from being squished like a bug by a nine-ton hunk of rock. We had to carry these little air meters. We called them Tweety Birds. They, were like, they looked like pagers, but they were keyed for sulfur dioxide, carbon monoxide, and there's something else. They were set at a certain percentage that was a threshold that if we got into the lower basement part of the mine, which is about, was about 1,700 feet underground, we could run into sulfur dioxide from the water, and if that alarm started going off, we had to get out of there, which we could see as a dampener and binding and legalistic, or we could see it as a life preserver because sulfur dioxide will kill you. And same with carbon monoxide. If carbon monoxide, I think, hit 1%, you could easily fall asleep and wake up in heaven and not even know you were falling asleep. So we had these things, and we were under strict protocol, and yet it allowed us to operate and make money. So yes, it was legalistic, but it kept us safe. If we ever had an accident for any purpose whatsoever, MSHA, which is the Mine Safety and Health Administration, MSHA would come in, shut the mine down. We'd lose production. We'd lose work days. And though we were maybe, if we were cutting shortcuts, breaking laws, one accident would cause us to lose everything we had tried to gain by breaking laws. So even though laws are upon our life now in the New Testament, they might hinder your flesh, they help you run the race longer and faster and swifter. We, again, we use the analogy of football or basketball or any sport. There are rules for safety and for sportsmanship and for fair competition. And once you learn those rules, you don't even think about them. They automatically affect how you move, how you raise your stick in hockey, uh, how many times you can dribble in basketball, when you can come off the line in football. Once you know these rules, it's not legalism to you. It's the boundaries of the sport. And I make the sarcastic analysis or uh, observation. I've never seen a ball player complain about how legalistic their sport is. Just throw the ball down and throw the puck down. I quit. It's too legalistic. I'm going to find something that doesn't have any rules, like bare-knuckle street fighting behind a bar. No, people go to jail for that weird stuff. People win championships when they obey the laws of the sport. More commandments require greater responsibility and less wiggly room. The only reason Christians don't like laws is because they're wanting to find loopholes to do what they want to do anyway. More commandments reveal more of God's nature and character. You've got to think, if now we've seen Christ in the flesh, now we have tasted and handled of the bread of life, he's revealed more of himself. Now that we've seen more of God, we're responsible for more. We can't get away with less. We can't get away with the old things we used to get away with. We're held to a higher level of responsibility. I marvel that the ignorant preachers and the carnal Christians think that under the New Testament, more of God has been revealed and we're able to sin more. More of God is revealed and we're able to live more like pagans because we're free now. Honestly, the mindset behind it is that folks believe that it was God who got saved at the cross. It was God who changed at the cross. That's heresy. God didn't change at the cross. We get changed at the cross and we're called up to a higher level of responsibility and maturity. And the more mature you are, the more responsibility we can put on you, the more rules we can apply to you, the deeper you can go into the things of God. 
You know, in the Old Testament, the priests, most of the book of Leviticus is called Leviticus because it deals with the Levites. Most of the book of Leviticus is codes for the Levites. They were closer to God. They had more law applied to them. The closer you and I get to God, the more laws will apply to us. The closer you get to a nuclear facility, the more laws will be applied to you. The closer you get to Watts Bar Nuclear Facility or X10 or K25 or Y12 there in Oak Ridge, all the nuclear facilities, the more law will be applied to you because radiation has a greater threshold or a greater uh, responsibility applied to it. Out there at Y12 in Oak Ridge, there's actually a zone as you approach the gate that has these checkered marks. And I know guys that work there as security guards. They carry automatic weapons. You cross that threshold without obeying them, they have permission to kill you in Oak Ridge. You know, an hour and a half that direction. Because that's why 12 is the U.S. government's repository for enriched uranium. That's where all the weapons grade radium or uranium is stored. When they disassemble all the nukes from around the world, it gets stored in Oak Ridge. So the guys at Y-12, they have machine guns and they're more than happy to kill people. That's why they, they, they afford it. I'm working here because one day some nut job out of California, granola munchin, little peace lover is going to cross that line and it's going to be worth my career. <laughs> you don't have those kind of laws applied to you at the Kroger parking lot because you're far away from the world's repository of enriched uranium, weapons-grade uranium. But the closer you get to Oak Ridge, I prefer not to even drive along the road that Y-12 is on. You take the other loop around just because it, it's serious business over there. The closer you get to God, church, the more law he's going to apply to you because he's going to expect you to be like him. If you want to mature, you're going to be responsible for more law. 1,050 in the New Testament. More commandments provide more protection and safety. All right, so coming back to Y-12 now. If you work in Y-12, you have to know all the laws of physics behind radiation. You have to know how to handle uh, radiation, how to handle uranium. You have to wear a dosimeter badge. You have to be tested on a regular basis. There's all this protocol just to even handle the stuff, to take it apart, where to store it, how to store it. And then there's protocol for if something gets messed up. There's all these different rules if you're going to be used, and it's all for protection and safety. Because the last thing you want to see is some knucklehead break the law, and we hear a rumble and look up and see a mushroom cloud towards the east. Because then you know we're not going that direction anymore. We're heading to Nashville. Other observations about New Testament commandments. New Testament commandments are often way more strict than the Old Testament. Think about that. If we're free, why is the New Testament more strict? Example one, in the Old Testament, thou shalt not commit adultery. All right, sweet, I can handle that. New Testament, Jesus Christ. Whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. That's a lot more strict. One is, I didn't do the deed. The other is, you thought about it, I count you guilty. That's a lot more strict. Same with fornication. What is fornication? Having sex and you're not married. That's sin. That's handling radiation in your life. Your life will slowly fall apart. We were talking this weekend about radiation and radiation history. In the old days in Europe, they found that you could mix radium, which is a radioactive element, with phosphorus and mix it in a paint, and it would glow forever in the dark. And so they decided to do that on watch faces so you could have glow-in-the-dark watches. And they didn't know anything about radium. 
They didn't realize it was radioactive. So in the watch factories, all the ladies who painted would lick the paintbrush to get a fine tip on their paintbrush, dip it in the radium-laced paint to paint the hands of the watch. And they all developed cancer of the jaw, tongue, and mouth, and most of them died. They were violating laws of radiation and physics, and their ignorance did not exempt them from it. And it slowly caused them. Just doing it once won't hurt you. But to do it eight hours a day or ten hours a day in a watch factory over a year or two or three, you're dosing your mouth with radiation that your body cannot recover from, and it gave them cancer. Their jaws rotted off, and they died. Same with sin. Same with fornication. You're playing with spiritual radiation. It will rot you. When I, when I worked uh, with the nuclear density gauge doing a soil compaction testing, we heard all the stories about the, the gauges being destroyed and you have these two little point sources of americium and cesium that are both radioactive and there was a story about the one guy was in a car accident and the nuclear density gauge was busted open and the little capsule of one of the isotopes, maybe it's cesium, it got knocked down the highway and one of the TDOT workers picking up the accident found it and you know how guys are. They like little silver polish things. We're very simple-minded like that. It's cool. So he picks this thing up, and he puts it in his pocket as a trinket. And it doesn't have any effect on him for about a month. Then he begins to develop a bruise and a sore spot in his right front pocket. It just goes in his dish at night with his change and his keys and his pocket knife. And he picks it up every morning and puts it back in his pocket. And he begins to develop a festering sore and a, and a redness because he's dosing his hip the same place every day. Didn't happen at once. But by breaking that law over and over and over again, he realized something's not right. And then his mind goes back to, they have the radiation hazmat team out there for a reason. I should probably tell somebody. Of course, they bring out the Geiger counter. Let's dose your like. You got to help this guy recover. Same with sin. You might be able to safely play with sin for a season and have pleasure. But the end thereof is death. And it isn't God killing you. It's you violating laws of radiation, laws of safety, laws of sin. Sin works death. And the laws of God come to get you further into the kingdom, further into his presence, further into his usage, and yet get you there safely. You can't violate these things. Ignorance is no excuse. It does not exempt you from the effects. Amen. Example two. In the Old Testament, thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. All right, I can stay away from crowds. I can stay away from bars. I can stay away from that. That's pretty easy. New Testament, abstain from all appearance of evil. Old Testament says just don't run with people that do evil. New Testament says don't even, look, don't even go around it if it looks evil. It doesn't even mean that it is evil. If it looks evil, you're to abstain from it. So like Pastor Vaughn he refused to drink root beer out of a root beer bottle because it looked evil. It wasn't, but it appeared. If somebody saw him driving down the road with the brown A&W root beer bottle, they could easily assume beer, except it wasn't. It was root beer. He refused to drink root beer out of a root beer bottle because it looked sinful. When I go to restaurants and I might order... I don't know, some kind of tea, not one of those Long Island pagan teas, but like a tea. I said, put strawberry in that. And they'll bring like this little umbrella, like a little sword with, I said, man, can you put that in a regular glass? This looks like alcohol and I'm not a wino. Or would you like to sit at the bar? No, 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 no. I will wait 20 minutes because I'm not an alcoholic. I'm a clean living Christian. That appears evil. 
or even some restaurants that are known as sports bars. You could probably go in there and not be an alcoholic, but I'm not going to go there because it's going to look like I'm going in there because 95% of the people that go in there go in there to drink beer and watch the sports event. Not going to do it because the Bible says to abstain from the appearance of evil. It's all about your Christian witness. Example three. Old Testament says, if you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. That's Leviticus 19, 13. Love your neighbor as yourself. James 2 says, if you have respect of persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. So one says, just love your neighbor. The other says, if you disrespect or have more favor towards anybody over the other, you're a transgressor of the entire law. Think about how strict that is. James says, if you show favoritism, you are transgressing the entire law. That is a lot more strict than just love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. New Testament commandments place more responsibilities upon Christians. I don't know why Christians are looking for less responsibility. Children want to grow up. Mommy, let me do that. Mommy, let me do that. Daddy, let me help you. Mommy, Daddy, I can do that. No, I got it. I got it. I don't need your help. Children look for responsibilities, but when adults become Christians, it's like this new movement says, I want less responsibility. I want to be free. Free from what? More New Testament commandments infer we are required to mature past the level of Old Testament believers. So we're supposed to be growing up. New Testament commandments deal more directly with the heart. And that's where we can't escape. The law is going to cut to the quick of our heart because he's a judge of the thoughts and the intents and the motives of the heart. That's what Hebrews 4.12 says. The word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder of soul and spirit. And is it a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart? That's the word of God. You, you do realize thou shalt not fornicate is the word of God. That will cut to your heart. The New Testament commandments are designed to expose the motives of our heart to get us to ask why. Why do I want to drink a beer? Why do I want to fornicate? Why can't I get married? Why do I want to steal? Why do I want to lie? Why? God wants you to know why. That's the very first conversation he had with Adam. Adam, where are you? Who told you? He was trying to get to the motive. I like what one man just pointed out. God initiated the altar call in the garden. Adam come out. Come on down. Respond. I love that aspect. God's laws command you to obey and do something so your heart can be fixed. New Testament commandments deal more directly with the heart. The Old Testament generally focused on outward behavior, and that's why it could easily fall into legalism. It was an outward behavior. The Jews demonstrated that. I should say Israelites. They weren't called Jews till after the captivity. The Israelites demonstrated legalism even in the wilderness when they could purify themselves on the third day wearing white garments. They could come out and act like they wanted to be part of the holy convocation. But inwardly, privately in their tent, they disobeyed God with manna, with the word in private. It's easy to fake outward commandments, but the word of God is going to cut to your heart to expose motives. And that's what you get convicted over, is your motives. God's always going to ask the why. He's going to ask you and I, why? Why? Why did you do this? Why? So here's 11 laws in the New Testament. 11 laws in the New Testament. Just to further drive home the point, we're not free from law. We have the law of faith. Where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law? Of works, nay, but by the law of faith. 
You're under the law of faith. The law of faith has many applications. We could teach a whole series on the law of faith, but needless to say, I want you to see there's a law of faith that gets us born again, and it excludes boasting. This subject here in Romans 3 is about salvation and justification through faith, not justification through works. We have the law of Christ. Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Anybody here free from the law of Christ? No, this is a commandment. Here's one of the 1,050 New Testament commandments. Bear one another's burdens. That means every Christian that comes to church should be involved in the ministry of helps. Sunday morning only Christians violate the law of Christ. Christians that only come and warm a chair violate this verse because they don't help bear the simple burden of the local church. Number three, the law of God. Paul said, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. So even in the New Testament, Romans chapter 7, one of the greatest epistles on church doctrine, Paul said, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. That's the born-again man. So when you as a Christian don't like the laws of God, you're declaring how immature and carnal you are because the inward man, the born-again man, delights in the laws of God. Romans 8 says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Oh, that's why Christians don't like the law of God. They have carnal minds. The carnal mind is God's enemy. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. I might say neither indeed does it want to be. That's why this lawlessness thing is so popular. That's why the the hyper grace message is so popular. You're drawing carnally minded God enemies to the church by telling them you don't have to be responsible for any laws. Our fourth law is the law of sin and death. Paul said, I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Do you see that one verse says law, law, law. It's a lot of law going on in Paul and he's born again, writing the epistle, testifying of his current experience. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Paul said, my mind still serves the law of God. I wonder if any of that's found in the Old Testament. Because at the time of his writing the Roman epistle, about 60 AD, there still is no New Testament. So when Paul says, I serve the law of God, his mind is still thinking Moses and the prophets. There's still a lot of the Old Testament prophets that haven't been fulfilled yet. We're fulfilling some of the prophets because Jesus said, I have a flock you know not of. The prophet said, I will go to the Gentiles and give them the message and then peace and establish a covenant with them. Those are Old Testament scriptures we are fulfilling as a church today. Romans 8, 2 says, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So here's a law you're free from, or we should say the effects or the binding force. Through Jesus Christ, we are free from the law of sin and death. It still wants to work on you, just like the law of gravity does. But through the law of lift and thrust, you can overcome the law of gravity. Through the law of the spirit of life in Christ, you can rise above the law of sin and death. That means you can get the victory over your sin. If you reject the laws of God, you'll be subjected to the laws of sin and death because you're always going to be under a law. The hyper-grace heresy that says you're free from law automatically puts people under the law of sin and death because if you don't teach people how to overcome sin and death through the law of God, all you're going to be is subject 
to the law of sin and death. Apply it to gravity and lift and thrust, which is how you fly things. If you don't teach people the law of God, the law of lift and thrust, how to rise up and overcome, then they're always going to be subject to the law of gravity, which is the law of sin and death. It's going to keep them down. And if at any point you are high in your Christian walk and you stop obeying the law of lift and thrust, the law of gravity is going to have a catastrophic effect on you. But until you die, these laws are still applied to our lives. Perfect law of liberty. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein. Wait, 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 James. James, you don't get it, man. We're free from laws. And you're telling us we have to continue in the perfect laws of liberty. Notice he says that these things... These are laws of liberty. These are laws that bring liberty. Breaking laws don't bring liberty. They bring incarceration. You break the laws of the New Testament, you get demon bound. You get sin bound. You get depressed bound. You get bound by vain imaginations and loopy thoughts. You get bound by sickness and disease. Breaking the laws of God don't set you free. They bind you. But obeying the laws of God, that brings liberty. That's why it's called the law of liberty. You continue therein, and being not a forgetful here, but a doer of the work. Again, I thought we were free from works. This man shall be blessed in his deed. The blessing comes by keeping the laws of God and by doing the work involved. So speak ye and so do, as they that shall be judged by the perfect or by the law of liberty. Notice we're going to be judged by the law of liberty. Law of spirit of life, Romans 8 to for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So again, we see this law of the spirit of life in Christ. What is the law? The law of the spirit of life in Christ is you're born again, and now you have a commandment to obey God and keep his commandments. It's the law of the spirit of life. How do you, how do you and I keep the spirit of God fresh upon our life? We stay out of sin. How do we keep the law or the spirit of life working in our lives? We pray. Did you know that when you and I pray, we're obeying a command to pray without ceasing? That's one of the 1,050 New Testament prayers. Pray without ceasing. How do you and I keep the spirit of life working in us? We don't defraud our brother. We repent when we sin. We keep the spirit of life working in our life by obeying commands. It's just lunacy to think you can go out there and let your flesh and your crazy, loopy, carnal mind just do whatever it wants and you be blessed. You won't be blessed. The law of righteousness. This is our seventh law. Again, there's 11. But Israel, which hath followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. So we're under the law of righteousness, which says, operate in the law of faith, and you'll receive the righteousness which is in God by Christ Jesus. So to be born again, we had to obey a law, the law of faith. We had to obey a law which says you must be born again. Paul said over and over again, you have obeyed that commandment. You have obeyed the gospel of Christ. Even being born again is an obedient act to a law. Hopefully you're just sitting there because you're taking all this in and you're absorbing it. To me, this is such a simple understanding. You're born again because you obeyed a commandment. The commandment came and said, give your heart to Christ. You must be born again. That's an imperative. You must be. Be. Be what? Be born again. That means you got to change. You must repent. That's a law. You must submit. That's a commandment. To say we're free from laws, 
I mean, honestly, that's like saying there's no sun. That's like saying you don't have to pay bills. That's like saying you never have to repent. The sheer ignorance of the modern heresy that says you're free from laws, it's like saying storks deliver babies. That is the gross height of the ignorance. How did you and I get born again? Most of us obeyed a command from a pulpit to come down to the altar and answer an altar call. And then the preacher, as a representative of Jesus Christ, said, pray this after me, command. And if you didn't obey that law, you didn't get saved. Not that you obeyed the preacher, but you obeyed the commandment delivered by the preacher from the word. As Romans says, whosoever calleth upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You had to obey the command to call. To say that we're free from laws is to say hedgehogs and storks make babies for humans. I don't even want to see what a hedgehog-stork-baby hybrid looks like. I guarantee you nobody messes with that bird. Eight is called the law of marriage. The wife is bound by the law. This is Paul quoting this in 1 Corinthians. As long as her husband lives. But if her husband be dead, she's at liberty to be married to whom she will, only in the Lord. So under the New Testament, we're still obeying Old Testament laws of marriage. That says you can't go sleeping around. You can't commit adultery. You're bound by the law of Moses to your husband or wife until they die. You can't go get a divorce just because it's inconvenient and you don't like them anymore because your like for them went out of style with your shoes. Number nine, the law of financial support. Say these things as a man or says not the law, the same also. For it is written in the law of Moses, thou shalt not muzzle the ox, excuse me, the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn, doth God take care for oxen. Or one translation says, does God only care about oxen? Paul quotes the Old Testament to establish New Testament law for supporting preachers. Number 10, the law of spousal obedience. The women or wives in the Greek are to keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but are subject to themselves just as the law also says. This is referring to in 1 Corinthians 14, the whole heart of that passage is disorder and chaos in a church. He starts off by talking about tongues being out of order then prophecy being out of order. So if you're going to speak in tongues, it must be two at most by three with an interpretation. Prophets can prophesy two at most by three. Let one judge so that all things may be done decently in order. And as far as the wives, he says, it's not permitted for them to speak. If they will learn, let them ask their husbands at home. So it's not that women can't talk or preach or teach in a church or sing or lead worship or do Sunday school. The whole premise of that passage is keeping things orderly in the service. In these days, in the Roman uh, Corinthian time, you'd have women just talking out loud to their husbands during the whole service like some of you still do. Just saying. <laughs> the, women are like, the husbands are like, yeah. you hear that woman? I've been telling you to be quiet for years. <laughs> Number 11, the royal law of love. If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as yourself, you do well. You're still under that law. So love is the fulfillment of the law. Having fulfilled the ceremonial laws, Jesus Christ left us with the moral law to fulfill in the New Testament. So the ceremonial laws the 600 of the 613 mitzvah, a chunk of those are ceremonial. They're Levitical, they're worship rites, we're not under those. Some of the principles we're under, the laws of how to give offerings, you don't give God your junk. We're still under that law. God loves a cheerful giver. We're under that law. But for the most part, the ceremonial laws are what Christ fulfilled. 
We don't sacrifice anymore. Christ has sacrificed for us. Jesus left us with the moral law. Paul summarized the moral law by saying in Romans 13, 10, love works no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You won't violate. You won't still commit adultery. You won't murder. You won't embezzle. You won't prostitute your daughter if you walk in the royal law of love because love fulfills the moral code. You'll treat each other as you want to be treated. That love does that. Galatians 5, 13 and 14 says, For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now again, not referring to the ceremonial law, which was fulfilled in Christ, referring to the moral law. Paul understands this. Both times he's saying love fulfills the law. It's not referring to the ceremonial law because that was resolved in Christ. So I've got these two things underlined. Love works no ill. Love serves. What are the heart and essence of the Old Testament moral laws still applicable to us today? What's the heart of what is still applied to us? These two verses give it to us. Work no ill will against one another and lovingly serve one another. That's what we're to still do. All these other commandments show us how to do that, how to work no ill will and how to serve one another. That's the fulfillment of the law. That's how we walk in the love of God. Some may ask, okay, but what does that look like? And fortunately for us, there are a lot of commandments in the New Testament to further exposit, expound, elucidate, elaborate, whatever your word is, what that looks like. 800 commandments show us how to work no ill will toward one another and how to love God. So, Godspeed. That's a lot to cover, but hopefully you're beginning to see whether you realize it or not, you're still under the law or laws of some sort. We're going to continue to teach this over the next several weeks. Father, we thank you for these lessons on the law and spiritual jurisprudence. Help us to be free from ignorance, free from sin, and may we be committed to your word and your doings and your will. Bless all those that listen to these lessons in the future. In Jesus' name, amen.